Father, we certainly live in very disturbing and maybe you could say fearful times right now. And Lord, uh, it seems to a lot of people, Lord, as if you've forsaken the world, that, that we're, we're left here all alone to deal with all of these trials and tribulations. But we know better than that, Lord. We know better than that from your word. We know that behind the scenes, Lord, that, that you are working out your good and perfect plan for all of your people. And Lord, we know that one day we're going to see the fruition of your good and perfect plan. That's what we see today as we come to this study in, in Genesis 45. Lord, help us to learn from this. Help us to be encouraged by this. Help us to see you behind the scenes working out this great ending to this great story. Lord, because that's the way you work in all of our lives. And Lord, we're so grateful to have a God like you, a loving God, Lord, a, a God who loves us all, who shows mercy on us all. All we have to do, Lord, is turn to you, to repent and turn to you. And, Lord, you'll see us through these storms. And, Lord, we hope through this storm that all sorts of people get serious about their relationship with you if they're Christians. Lord, if they're not Christians, that, that, that these things turn them to you. Lord, we know that's what the difficulties of life can do. And we just ask that you, by the power of your spirit, send revival to this country. Father, we just pray for our study today, and we ask you to bless it. Uh, we ask that in Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen. Over in Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul gives this makes this convincing case for the sovereignty and providence of God over the fate and affairs of Israel. It's a very fascinating study if you've never really uh, studied that, I, I challenge you to go back and read that, especially in the times in which we live, because what he does there, he shows how God has a plan, and when it doesn't seem he has a plan, when it seems he's nowhere to be found, he still has a plan for his people, and he had a plan for his people of Israel, but we've read this Bible, and we've gone through the Bible, and we know that over and over and over again, as good as God was to the people of Israel, they rebelled and rebelled and rebelled against him until finally their, their rebellion uh, reached its pinnacle when they crucified the very Messiah that they were supposed to bring forth. They crucified him on a cross. And after that, we, from studying history, we know that God scattered them throughout the lands, throughout the world, and they have just come back into that land in recent Years, But even though he scattered them, they were still his chosen people. And that's the case that Paul makes. And that God was still working out his plan. Even after they were, they were, they were the, Jerusalem was destroyed by, by Titus and then uh, they were carried off into captivity, God was still working his plan for Israel. And we see that fruition of that plan even now in the present time in which we live. Uh, because they were his chosen people. And, and, and so Paul kind of summarizes the whole thing when, as he makes this case, and he says this. He says, all of Israel will be saved. And then he follows it up with these words. Listen to what he says. He says, for God, and this doesn't seem to make sense to us, but it says, for God has committed them to disobedience that he might have mercy on them all. Now, that just doesn't make much sense to the average person. 
I mean, but isn't that what God has done in our lives? I mean, before we were saved, isn't that what he had done in our life? He had committed us to disobedience so that he might show mercy on us all. That's exactly what he did for the nation of Israel, and that's exactly what he does for us. But that, but, but that doesn't make much sense, and, it, and, and Paul knew he couldn't explain it. So he finishes up that whole discourse with these words. He says in Romans eleven thirty three, Oh, the depth and riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. I mean, God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we see that in every area of life, don't we? As Christians, we see that all the time. I mean, most of you heard just a few weeks ago, Robbie Zacharias uh, died. Uh, he was afflicted with this terrible cancer. I mean, here was this great apologist in the prime of his ministry, uh, a ministry that I think is about as important as any ministry that was, that was out there because he was an apologist going into these secular environments and, and making a case for Christ, and, and he had a way of doing it that, that not many people have. And, and God allowed him to have cancer, and he's gone. And his voice is gone to some degree. Now, he's, you still can listen to his tapes and stuff, but he's not going to these campuses anymore. And so, you know, it doesn't make sense to me when I see these charlatan preachers that live to be 100, you know, going on and on and on. And Again, I mean, why would you take somebody like Robbie Zacharias off the scene, Lord? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me when I see some fine Christian couple who, who, who is doing their very best to have children, and they can't have children. And then you see some, some woman of the streets and she has 10 children. It, it, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me when I see uh, uh, someone who has, uh, who, who's at their job and they're working hard at their job and they're good employees and they're honest employees and, and maybe even the best employees and, and yet they get laid off and then some evil co-worker get, gets promoted. That just doesn't seem to make sense to me. There's a lot of things that in this world that don't make sense. And, 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 that, and, and that disparity that exists between God seeming to, to favor some and not favor others exists within the church. It exists among Christians. Because, because listen to what the author of Hebrews says over in that hall of faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Listen to this list he gives. He says that by faith, some subdued kingdoms, they work righteousness, they obtain promises, they stop the mouths of lions, they quench the violence of fire, they escape the edge of the sword, and out of weakness they were made strong, uh, they became valiant in battle, women received their dead uh, who were raised to life again. I mean, look at all of those victorious people that are listed there in Hebrews 11. But he doesn't stop there. The, listen to the other side of this. He said others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. They were tortured to death uh, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yea, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sown in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. I mean, for some it doesn't end so well. It doesn't seem to end so well. And that just doesn't seem to make much sense. 
Now, that's why I love the story of Joseph. Because in Joseph's story, you get the whole picture. You see his defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. And then finally, you see his great victory. And you see things turn out really good, which is the way all things turn out for those who love the Lord. In the end, they really they really are going to turn out good. I mean, we saw how Joseph, in, in recent studies, how he was promoted to, to, I mean, here he was. He had been sold off uh, into slavery by his brothers. Uh, he had been falsely accused of rape and thrown into prison. He had been betrayed by the, by the, uh, the, by the, by the butler, and, and uh, it looked like things were never going to get good for Joseph. And then all of a sudden, just like that, in one day, his whole life was turned around, and, and he was second in command over all of Egypt, and uh, uh, he's about to have this reunion with his brothers, and he's about to, to see his dad. And I mean, what a grand ending that is to a wonderful story. But the way we get there, it doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, if I was God, I would have done it a different way. But I'm not God. God does things his way. He does things his way because his way is a way that we don't un always understand. He sees everything that's going on in this world. He sees everything that's going on in your life, in my life, and in everybody's life in this country, and everybody's life in this world. And so he's orchestrating everything that's happening for the good of those that love the Lord. But, and, and until you see the end, it's not going to make sense. But in the end, I promise you, I don't care where you're at today, what situation you're in, what this virus has done to you or what it's going to do to you, it's going to make sense in the end. God has a plan for your life if you're a child of God. If you're not a child of God, let me tell you what his, his goal is, is to make you a child of God. All right, now, uh, so, so let's go to, to, to chapter 45. And if you remember where we left off last time, uh, here was Joseph. Uh, uh, he had, and for Benjamin, things didn't make much sense because Benjamin had been falsely accused of stealing Joseph's silver cup, which he used for, supposedly used for divining. I don't think he used it for that, but, but that's what he pretended that he used it for. So, so that, that cup is found in Benjamin's bag, and Benjamin is accused of being the thief. And they're, and they're about to make Benjamin a slave. That's what happened when we left off last time. But remember what happens. Those brothers didn't just, just leave. They were, they were, Joseph said, hey, you're free to go. But they didn't leave. They went back to save their brother. And Judah steps up and he says, look, instead of taking Benjamin as a slave, do whatever you want with me. You can kill me. You can put me in prison. You can make me a slave. But I love my father. I don't want my father to be grieved anymore. I don't want my brother to be taken as a slave. Take me instead. And I believe any of those brothers would have done the same thing at this point. That's how much God had worked in their lives to change them through all of these events that we're looking at. And so, uh, so all of this, I mean, here's Joseph, and he's seen, he's seen his brothers. He's been reunited with his brothers, but they don't know who he is yet. And he hasn't told them who he is. And he, and he sees this this act of goodness on behalf of his brothers, and it's just more than he can take. He can't take it anymore. So that's where we pick up 
in verse number, in chapter number 45. So go with me to chapter number 45, and we'll pick up in verse number 1. It says, Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me except my brothers. So, st- so no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And, he, and before he makes himself known, known to them, it says, He wept aloud. And, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. I mean, he wept so loud that not only his brothers heard it, everybody in his own house heard it, and even in Pharaoh's house next door, they all heard it. That's how loud he was weeping. He just couldn't control himself anymore. I mean, here's this guy. He's been, he's been uh, uh, leader of Egypt for, for 10 years, this strong, tough guy. And now he's breaking down into tears. He, he just can't stand it anymore. And, and you gotta, you got to ask yourself, I mean, why? I mean, why is he sweeping so much? Well, there, there's some obvious answers to that. One of the answers is that he's seen the fact that his brothers have changed, and that's blessed his heart. But part of this is all of that agony and bent-up frustration and pain and anger that he had felt for all those years is now being released and he's forgiving his brothers. He's forgiving his brothers because he's seen that they've repented and they've they've changed to some degree and he's opened his heart up to them and he's weeping. And I'll tell you the other reason he's weeping. He's weeping out of joy. I mean, he he is full of joy. I mean, like Paul, he says, oh, the depths and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. We don't hear him say that, but I know in his heart he was saying something like, Lord, I can't believe that you've done this for me. I can't believe you've done such a wonderful thing for me. And so, so uh, uh, he, he, he weeps and, and he weeps aloud and, and they all hear it. And then at verse number three, it says, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. I mean, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop at that point. I mean, all the weeping was gone. The brothers were like, what is this guy weeping about? And then he tells them. He says, I, he said to his brothers, I am Joseph, your brother. And the first question he asked, he asked, does my father still live? Now, he had asked them that question several times. But he really wants to know. Because I think more than anything else at this point, I mean, he's seen his brothers, he's seen Benjamin, more than anything else at this point, he wants to see his father. And it's just, this, all of this is just too good to be true for all of them. And, and so, I mean, it's, it, can I really see my father? Is he still alive? But his brothers didn't answer him. I, don't, I, didn't, I wouldn't think they would answer him. They were stunned. I mean, uh, they were shocked. And then that shock turned to fear. What's he going to do to us now? That is Joseph standing there. Remember what we did to Joseph? Remember how we threw him into that pit and we wouldn't even let him eat? Remember how we, we mocked him while he was in there? Remember how we sold him off to those Midianite slaves? Remember how we lied to Dad? I mean, remember all those terrible things we do? We're in deep, deep trouble. That's the way they're thinking at this point. And Joseph's... And, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Whenever David brought somebody near to him, what did he do? He, he sliced them with a, 
with a sword. And, and I believe they're probably thinking the same thing. Come here so I can kill you. And, and kind of like my dog does when he's done something bad and I tell him to come here, they kind of crawl up there to him and they came near him. And, and uh, uh, it says, let's see, where did I leave off here? So they came near him. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you, he, he makes his case against them, is what it sounds like, whom you sold into slavery. And I got to believe they were thinking they were dead men at this point. But listen to what he says. He says, don't worry about it. But now do not, therefore, be grieved, uh, be afraid, or be angry with yourselves because you sold me here, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. In other words, you didn't do it. God did it. You don't be worried. I'm not going to kill you. You deserve to die. But you didn't do it. You were only puppets in God's hand. God did it. God sent me here for a reason. He sent me here to preserve life to preserve the life of these Egyptians that live in this Egyptian empire, but more importantly, to, observe you and your, to preserve you and your little ones because you and your little ones make up the nation of Israel. You are the promised children of God. Oh, the depths and riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's ha had to be what Joseph was thinking at this point. But I don't believe the brothers believed that. I don't believe that his, they believed that his ways were unsearchable and his judgments were past finding out. I don't believe they believed that at this point. They weren't theologically astute enough to believe that. I mean, they were pretty much pretty rough guys. Uh, they weren't pagans. They knew about the Lord, but, but they were close to being pagans. And, and so I don't, I don't think they believed that at all, and we know that. I, I, at this point, they're, they're just grateful Joseph believed it. Because later on, and I don't even know for sure they thought he believed. How can anybody believe that? How can anybody believe that everything we did that was evil when we threw you into that pit and sold you off to slavery was really God doing that? How can anyone believe that? I mean, because that's too strange to believe. But, and we know they didn't believe it because later on, we're going to see when we get to chapter 50, the last chapter of, this, uh, the last chapter of Genesis, we're going to see that that uh, uh, Joseph is, Joseph, uh, Jacob, Jacob is going to die, and the brothers are going to come to Joseph, and they're, and, and they're going to they're beg Joseph to spare their life because they believe that the only reason he had kept them alive was for the sake of Jacob, to not, so that Jacob wouldn't be grieved. But now that Jacob was dead, they believe when you get to chapter 50, they believe that, that Jake, Joseph is now going to kill them, and, and so they... They beg him to spare their lives. And what does Joseph say at that point? He says exactly what he says here. You didn't do what, you didn't really do what you did to me. What you, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So it was God who, who did all of this. All right, now, go with me to verse number six, I believe is where we're at. He says, for these two years, the famine was, has been in the land. So we, we pretty much could date this now as, as far as Joseph's life go. Uh, it, it's two years into the famine. There were seven years of plenty. And Joseph was 30 years old when, 
he was made leader over all of Egypt. And so he's about, he's over 39, we know that. Probably, we don't know how long it was until the great years of seven years of plenty came, maybe one or two years. So, so he's probably about 40 years old at this point. He says, for these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting where you're at. It's not going to happen. I mean, you're not going to be able to make it back in Canaan because God has told me and told Pharaoh through a dream that this famine is going to last seven years, and so there's still five years left. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you, to keep you prosperous, to keep you not just alive but prosperous. God doesn't intend for us just to be alive. I mean, I don't know what you're going through right now, what you're going to go through, uh, with what's happening to our country right now. But God's intention isn't just to hide you in some corner and keep you alive. His intention is to prosper you, mainly to prosper you spiritually. But he's going to take care of you. God's going God's to take care of these guys in a marvelous way. We're going to see that in a minute. He sent, me, he sent me before you to preserve posterity for you, for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. I mean, God is going to save you uh, through what he's done for you. Now, here's where this is all strange to me. And this is when I said a while ago, if I was God, I would have done it differently. Why not just not have a famine? Who brought the famine? We were told in Genesis, who was the one that sent the famine into the land? It was God. God, it would have been a lot easier. Now, if you're asking my advice, he never asked for my advice for some reason. But if he was asking for my advice, I would say, Lord, wouldn't it have been a lot easier just to not have a famine? Then you would have had to have Joseph thrown into a pit and sent off into slavery, and he would have spent 13 years of, in slavery and in prison. I mean, you could have saved all of that. Just don't, just don't have the famine. And don't, send him, don't let his brothers take him away and send him off to Egypt. That seemed to me would be the easier way. Why? Why would God bring it to this point and then say, I'm the one who had you sent to Egypt to, to, to save your, the nation of Israel from a famine that I'm going to send. Why not just not send the famine? Well, see, it goes back to God working that weave, his, his divine plan, that tapestry of grace that he works out through all the things that he does. I mean, he's constantly working through all situations that he allows and even orchestrates in order to do good for us. He's doing wonderful things and some of the most mundane things in our life. And some of the most terrible things in our life. God is working out a wonderful plan for us. And that's what he was doing for Joseph. I mean, look at all of the good things that came of this. I mean, what kind of man was Joseph when he was 30 years old? I'm going to tell you what, he was a man's man. You see him weeping here, and it takes a, a man to weep sometimes. But, but man, he, he, was, he was strong enough and, and, and uh, had so much character that Pharaoh saw it in him right away and made him leader over all of Egypt. I mean, so it certainly worked out great things for him. You look at, you look at his brothers. His brothers never would have repented. They never would have changed. They never would have, would have uh, been the kind of people that they ended up being if they hadn't gone through all the things they went through. And one of the things they went through, through were the 20 years or so of feeling guilty for what they had done to Joseph. And that had changed them. And then you're going to see even old Jacob. Jacob is still acting like Jacob when, when we get to the end of this chapter. But he's eventually going to finally act like Israel. 
And God's using all of these hard times to make Jacob into Israel. And that's what God's doing in your life right now. He's building Christian character in you so you won't be Israel, so that you will be like Christ. That's what God's doing for us. And he's working out a wonderful, wonderful plan for all of us. And now we go to verse number 8. It says in verse number 8, so now it was not you who sent me here. You guys were just puppets, but God has done this, and he has made me, uh, this is interesting here, like a father to Pharaoh. Now, how was he like a father to Pharaoh? More than likely, my guess is that Pharaoh had, the Pharaoh, Pharaoh's father had died at a very, when he was at a very young age, and so uh, this boy took over the empire, and along comes Joseph, and Joseph he sees Joseph as a man who could be by his side and help him run that empire. And so he, he didn't just become like a leader for Joseph, a paid politician. He became a close friend to Joseph, almost like a father to Joseph. And I mean to Pharaoh. Joseph became like a father to, to, to Pharaoh, and, and, and they became close friends. And he goes on, he says, and, and he's made me lord of all his house, and you can cross out the A there, and ruler throughout the land of Egypt. I mean, he was made the ruler. He went from slave to being the ruler of all of Egypt. Who could, who's the only one who could do that? Only God could do something like that. And then we pick up in verse number 9, and he says, Hurry, and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. I believe Joseph would have gone up there personally if he didn't have so many responsibilities as the leader of all of Egypt, but he can't leave in the midst of this famine. He says, look, you guys get down there and get it down there as fast as you can. Don't dilly-dally around. Get back up here. I want to see Dad. And you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. Uh, Goshen is about 100 square miles of the most fertile land on earth. Sits in the Nile Delta, and so... So uh, uh, he was sent into a land where they, that they could irrigate uh, and that they could, they could raise grain and that they could feed their, their cattle. And so they, posterity is what they were going to have. He says, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all you have. There I will provide for you all you need lest you and your household, if you stay in Canaan, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years left of this severe famine. So, so uh, you go back and you tell Dad that I'm still alive. You tell him that I'm alive and that God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Now, there's something interesting here that Joseph doesn't tell him, and I don't know if he ever, he ever did tell them to do this, but when they got to their dad and they told their dad that Joseph was still alive, how were they going to explain that? Did, but, but Joseph doesn't say, the first thing I want you to do, I want you to go back and I want you to tell your dad that you sold me into slavery, and this is how I ended up, and this is how I uh, God took your evil and turned it into my good and into your good. But, but Joseph didn't have that kind of heart. He's not looking for revenge here. 
Whether or not they told their dad or when they told their dad, I don't think we really know. I think at some point they did. But uh, I think it's interesting here that he doesn't say to them, hey, I want you to tell dad exactly how this happened. He doesn't. He says, you just get back and tell him I'm alive. You can tell him whatever you want and just tell him I'm alive. And then in verse number 12, and behold, your, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is, a, is, is my mouth that speaks to you. In other words, tell him everything that I tell you we've seen with our own eyes. We've seen this. Hey, he is Lord over all of, of Egypt. And he does have the ability to, 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 to keep us during this famine. And Benjamin can vouch for it because I don't know that Jacob would have listened to the other brothers, but he's going to listen to Benjamin. He says, he says, so you shall tell my father all of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here so I can see him. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers finally were willing to talk to him. What did they say? I, I can just guess. I'm sure they said, we're sorry. We're sorry. Please forgive us for what you did, for what we did to you. And no doubt he forgave them. He gave them that forgiveness. And uh, I believe they finished it all up by praising God. I mean, they had to all be sitting there thinking exactly what Paul says, oh, the depths and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, that God would bring us to this point where we could all be reunited in love. And it's only going to get better when we get dad in on all of this. Then in verse number 16, it says, now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come, so it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. Now, no doubt, Joseph and Pharaoh being friends, Joseph had told Pharaoh how he had gotten there. He had told him. I'm sure they had long conversations about it. He had told him about his bro how his brothers had sold him into slavery. And, and now he's telling, he tells Pharaoh that, hey, these guys I've been dealing with from, from Canaan, these are my brothers. Now, how do, I, how do you think all of this must have affected Pharaoh? I mean, remember it was Joseph who worshipped Yahweh, the Lord, who interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. And it was Joseph who told Pharaoh, it was my brothers who sold me into slavery. And now, all of a sudden, he's being reunited with his brother. You think maybe Pharaoh would go out and worship some pagan sun god who had never done anything for him? Or you think maybe he might turn his worship to Yahweh God? I bet he did. We don't know, but... Don't be surprised if you see men like Pharaoh, that Pharaoh, not the one that, that Moses dealt with, but this Pharaoh in heaven when you get to heaven. Men like Nebuchadnezzar. Because, again, God loves them. He loves this Pharaoh every bit as much as he loves Joseph. And, and that's why God's working some pain in your life so that maybe you can reach some Pharaoh in your life. You just don't know how God's working. His ways are strange. Uh, uh, his way... His, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. But anyway, Pharaoh finds out, and Pharaoh says to Joseph at this point, say to your brothers, I'm in verse number 17, do, do this, load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you 
will eat of the fat of the land. Now you are commanded to do this. You don't have any choice to do this. I'll come get you if you don't do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not uh, be concerned about all your stuff. You're not going to need your stuff when you get here. I'm going to give you everything you could possibly need to live a good life because you're going to have the best of all the land of Egypt. That's going to be yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh. And he gave them provisions for their journey, for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. I wonder who Joseph's favorite at this point was. It's obviously Benjamin. We saw that earlier when Benjamin received five times the servings at the, at the dinner that, that Joseph served. And now we see him give him five times uh, the changes of garments plus 300 pieces of silver. Now, would that upset the brothers? I don't think so. I think, man, they're just sitting here high-fiving each other because Joseph's not going to kill them. I mean, uh, their lives have been spared. The lives of their families have been spared. They're going to go back, and they're going to have grain. They're going to bring them all back, and they're going to, no matter how long this famine lasts, they're going to be living in the very best land of Egypt, and so they're all going to survive the, the famine. And by the way, Pharaoh said, uh, you can have anything you want when you get to, to Egypt. So who needs 300 pieces of silver? Who, who needs a rack full of clothes? You can have all you have when you get here anyway. So they weren't worried about it. They're just excited for the way things have gone. And then in verse number 23, it says, And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain bread and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away and they departed and, he, and listen to what he says to them as they're about to depart. He says, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Joseph knew exactly. I don't know if he knew about Satan or not. He probably did. But he knew how Satan worked. He knew how people's hearts worked. They always think the worst. They always listen to those voices inside, those evil voices inside, and they fail to trust God. And he knew that they were going to get out on that trip, and along the way, the devil was going to come to them, and he was going to say, look, you go back to Egypt with your father. All he wants you to do, all he wants you to do is get Jacob back there. You go back to Egypt with your father, he's going to kill you, or he's going to throw you into prison. Cut and run as fast as you can and get as far away from Egypt as you possibly can. You got all this stuff, it'll last you a while, get out of here. And I'm sure those thoughts crossed their minds. And Joseph knew they would cross their minds, and so he tells them, look, see that you do not become trouble along the way. And then they went out from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. What a story. And they told him, saying, Joseph, is still alive. What? And dad, guess what? He's governor over all the land of Egypt. Now before Jacob has time to reason this out, his heart almost stops at the very thought that Joseph could still be alive. He, I, I don't think he was that concerned that, uh, what his position was. But that had to shock him too. But his heart almost stops 
Then he thinks about it a little bit. That is impossible. I saw the bloody garment. I've been told for 22 years now that, that Joseph was killed by wild beasts. It's impossible. And so it says, and Jacob's heart stood still, but he did not believe them. He didn't believe them because it was just too good to be true. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to him, and then when he saw the carts and which Joseph had sent to carry it, him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Revived from what? Revived from almost being dead. That's where his spirit was at this point. I mean, Jacob couldn't deny the proof. I mean, he, he looks, and there are the carts. Uh, he hears the, uh, the truth about Joseph being uh, king over all of Egypt, being the leader over all of Egypt. Uh, he hears it out of the mouth of Benjamin, who he trusts. And, and, and it, it, what's too good to be true is actually true. He sees the 300 pieces of silver. He sees all the garments that were given to 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 Benjamin, and he realizes that the impossible has come true, that his son is still alive, and his spirit was revived. Revived from what? From 22 years of a constant state of depression. Should Jacob have been depressed for 20 years? No. He should have trusted the Lord. But what Jacob did, he let his faith wither. And, and his faith in the goodness of God wither. And, and so he lived in this constant state of depression, like a lot of us do at times. And he turned into, I really think if you read this, you can see it. He turned into a pessimist. He became cynical of people. And more importantly, he became cynical of God. Be real careful that that doesn't happen to you. I remember years ago when I was in seminary in New Orleans and there was a friend of mine who had pastored for many years who was working on his PhD at the time and him and I used to pray together each week and, and we had finished praying one day and we were talking and, and he could sense kind of a bitterness in my voice and about some things and he said, George, let me give you the best advice I can possibly give you as a pastor. He says, you're going into some difficult situations. You're going to be disappointed by people. You're going to be hurt by people. You're going to be hurt by God. You're going to be troubled about why God isn't doing certain things in your life. He said, the best advice I can give you is never let yourself become cynical, cynical and pessimistic, where you don't trust people, you don't trust God, and you're always thinking the worst. I don't know how many times over the past 25 years of ministry those words have rung in my ears, in my heart. Those words Chuck Frazier told me that day, don't become cynical. Don't become a pessimist. 
Look, life beats us up. People beat us up. It's really hard to not become pessimistic. But who do you hurt when you become pessimistic? I tell you, the number one person you hurt is yourself. When you become cynical of people, especially when you become cynical of God, let me tell you, you're not hurting God. You might hurt God's heart, his feelings, but you're not hurting what he's going to be doing or what he's not going to do. You're hurting yourself. And you're making yourself incapable of loving others. And I really believe that's the point that Jacob had reached here. He had become a bitter old man and, and a pessimist. And, and now he hears that Joseph is alive and, and his spirit is revived. It's revived back the way it should have been. He's, I mean, you think his faith didn't soar? You think, and, and when his faith soared, I mean, his, his, his uh, love soared? I mean, I mean, his spirit soared? I mean, you don't think it didn't soar when he hears that Jacob is Lord over all of Egypt? Uh, I mean, he had to be thinking, wow, only God could do that. Why did I spend 22 years not trusting God? When God had, I knew that God always worked things out for my good. Why didn't I trust him? Why was I so miserable all of those years? I mean, I wonder how many years we've spent or weeks or months we've spent in misery. Because we just wouldn't trust God. A God who's never failed us. A God who's always done good for us. Who's always going to do good for us. But tell you what, we're living in times right now where it's going to be real easy to become cynical. It's going to be of others. It's going to become real easy to become pessimistic. Where everything that comes out of our mouth is bitterness. Don't let that happen to you. That's a choice. All you have to do is believe that God is working things out for your good. And hang on to that. And love people. And trust people, the people you can trust. And trust God whom you know you can trust always. And I believe Jacob had to say at this point, Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. I should have trusted him all along. Then the last verse here we'll look at today. He says, then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, that's an interesting statement because that statement is mixed with faith and it's mixed with pessimism. I mean, you got to think about it. For a 130-year-old man, to pack up all his belongings and move 250 miles down to Egypt, a foreign land, after he's finally settled in the land of Canaan there at Hebron, why in the world would he move? It's going to take faith. In fact, his faith's going to be tested, and he's going to get down to Beersheba, and he's going to want to turn back. And God's going to have to visit him uh, in a vision to, to, to get him to go on. But he's going to go on. But that took a lot of faith. But look at the pessimism here. He says, I'm going to go see him while I'm still alive. You know what he was saying? I'm going to go see him, and then I'm going to die. God's, you know, I'm 130 years old. I'm going to go see him, and then I'm going to die. Jacob, Jacob, you're going to live another 20 years. you got a lot of life left. 
you're going to see your son Joseph. You're going to see your grandson, your grandsons Ephraim and Manasseh. You're going to meet your daughter-in-law. You got a lot of good things that are. You're going to meet Pharaoh. You're going to move to some of the best land on earth. You got some good years ahead of you. So hang in there, and we're going to see that all transpire as we, as we finish up the story in the next few weeks as we finish up the story of Genesis. But what a great story. What an apropos story for the times in which we live. I mean, I can't think of a better story to be going through in the difficult times in which we just live. Because this story of Joseph, some people see it as a history lesson. Some people see it as a lesson on the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And, and it is a very important part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This nation is a very important part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So I see it that way too. But I don't think that's the main lesson here. I don't think it's the main thing we need to be looking at. The main thing, I think God put it in this Bible for us, the story of Joseph, is that it's a story that encourages us uh, when we are going through very strange and difficult times. To, it encourages us to trust the Lord. That's, that's what we want to learn to do. We want to learn to trust the Lord no matter how strange time, the times get. When it seems like God is nowhere to be found, he's there. We've got to believe that he's there. It's impossible to please God without faith. And those that come to him must believe that he is and he's, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what we're told in Hebrews 11, 4. I mean, let me tell you what. You can't show your love more to God than you can in times like this. When it seems like God is far, far, far away, and you say, hey, I don't care that it seems that he's far away. I don't care that it seems that times are difficult. I'm going to trust the Lord, and I'm going to pray to the Lord, and I'm going to trust him for an answer that's good for me. And you've got to believe that. Listen to how Henry Morse concludes this chapter uh, 45 of Genesis in his book, The Genesis Record. He says, there is no greater example in the Bible of God's gracious watch over his people. A multiplicity of seemingly accidental and unrelated events, events which seem ugly and difficult at, time, at the time, woven together by an unseen divine hand, and to a tapestry in which every person is ideally situated in their proper and unique place so that God can do his best for them. Look, we're going through times right now that seem very ugly and difficult. But we can be sure that if we are children of God, that God has situated us exactly where he wants to be while he is weaving our circumstances into a tapestry of good. That's what he's doing right now. This is all going to work out for our good. Listen to how we, poet William Cowper describes the mysterious way workings of God. Listen to this poem for a minute. My wife gets on me the way I say poem. But is it, was that right that time? Okay. But anyway, listen, listen to the poem. I think I got it right. Here we go. 
God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. He rides upon the storm. Deep in the unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and soon shall break in blessing on your head. When these tough times we're going through are finally turned into blessings that we can see, then we're going to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depths and riches of the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the encouragement that we get in your word. We thank you for Jesus Christ, Lord, who's died for our sins and, and made a way for us to have eternal life. Life that began when we first received him into our hearts. Lord, we thank you for that life. We thank you for the joy and peace and, and posterity that comes to those, Lord, who seek you first, who seek your righteousness first. Father, I just ask today that we be those kind of people. And if there's anyone in this room who, who doesn't know you, Lord, goodness sake, we know that today is the day of their salvation. Don't wait if you're there. Don't wait for, for, for any more time to pass. We don't know how much more time we have. Lord, we're looking forward to the things that you're going to do in our life in these difficult times. Lord, and more than that, we're looking forward to the day that you come and receive us to be your children forever in your kingdom. Lord, we know that day is coming soon, and we, we, we say, all say Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We say that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.